Hi, this is Ryan Evans with a very special War on the Rocks podcast. I'm here with General Gem- General Dempsey, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I have uh, Jason Fritz, one of our editors of War on the Rocks, also joining us, and we're going to talk about the profession of arms, which is, uh, General, a big passion of yours, one yeah. of your central efforts, actually, ever since you were TRADOC commander. Mm-hmm. Um, how much has your did your experience joining the post-Vietnam Army in the mid-'70s, which sort of went through some similar challenges that we're about to see now, shape your approach to profession of arms? Well, I, you know, I think you, you're shaped by the accumulation of your experiences over time. So I, I entered West Point in, in 1970, and you know what kind of climate there was in the country in 1970. Not just related to the Vietnam War, um, but related to a, just a whole bunch of social issues inside the country. So, you know, in that environment, um, the military had kind of lost its standing with the with the American people, uh, you know, simply stated. And so, uh, even as a very young officer, it occurred to me that um, if we are to live up to our response, and especially as we transition to an all-volunteer force, by the way, it occurred to me that this issue of professionalism would have to become more prominent. And, in fact, in 1988 at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, I uh, studied for a master's degree and took as my thesis that issue. And in that particular treatise, if you will, I came to the conclusion that the the single most important value in our long list of professional values was the was the uh, duty was the value of duty. By the way, I wasn't the first one to dream that up. You may remember that Robert E. Lee said, "Duty is the sublimest virtue." So. That started me down a path of, of studying what it means to be a professional. How is it different from simply a job? Uh, what is it that we owe ourselves internally? Um, how do we hold ourselves to a higher standard? How do we identify that standard? What are the key leader attributes that define us? And how do we d- deliver them? And how do we make sure we know we're delivering them? And so that's the context in which I entered TRADOC did some things there, did a few things as chief staff of the Army, knowing that after 10 or 12 years of conflict, we'd gotten sloppy. It's not, I've said this before, it's not that the war caused this uh, misstep, if you will, uh, but rather that the tools that we had at our disposal, whether they were education, oversight, surveys, command climate assessments, fitness reports, mentoring and, you know, mentors and protégés. We had kind of broken, you know that, we kind of broken some of those relationship relationships because of the pace and in some cases because of modularity, with this notion in the Army anyway that you could kind of plug and play with units. Well, you can actually, they're very fungible, but when you do that, you break the mentor-protege relationship as you plug and play. And so we're looking back now and, and looking forward as well. That's a long answer, but that's how I came to this conclusion that it was time to, to uh, um, take a very close look at this. That's a good answer, actually. And I know Jason, a fellow armor officer, experienced. I, I don't know, Jason, do you want to comment or question based on what you saw? Yeah, I, I would agree, particularly on the uh, the issues of, of mentor and protege mm. issues. Um, <clears throat> I was in the first modularized brigade, second brigade, third infantry division, wow. um, and you know we going through the pains of transitioning to that that model and some of the repercussions over the over the years with that. And I, I was a brigade planner during the surge, and we went into uh, an area of Iraq where 
we, well, Al-Qaeda owned the battle space, but what ended up happening was they took all of our battalions away. We, we took one, one battalion and we got another light battalion from somebody else. Yeah. And so we had to fight a fight underhanded. We had commanders didn't know each other. It was, it was a very challenging situation. I hope you mean undermanned, not underhanded, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> but anyway, you're, so you experienced it, but that's the point. I grew up in a military with a very defined chain of command, and that chain of command was, all, was sometimes criticized for being extraordinarily hierarchical, and it was. So we, we corrected it uh, by this concept of modularity, where battalions could be interchangeable. You, you really you could plug yourself into a heavy unit, a light unit, a, a striker unit. Um, and you can. The, unit, the, the units today are extraordinarily flexible. But when you do that, you break that leadership chain and that, and that relationship of trust, and it has to be kind of rebuilt constantly. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to go back to, the, you know, to what it was before, but I think we need to look back and decide maybe, we, maybe the pendulum swung a bit on this issue of flexibility and modularity. And you're, you're just getting ready, you've announced recently, to evaluate this sort of campaign on profession of arms, and you've seen it very much as a military campaign, you've said. Um, how are you going to evaluate that, and what, what are the sort of results you've seen so far? Well, first let me say the reason I see it as a military campaign is two reasons. One is we really need to own this, this issue. I mean, we're the profession, um, and, and we are responsive to the direction, the guidance, of our civilian elected leaders, but we are the profession, and so we need to own it. And I can assure you that uh, the Joint Chiefs, that's uh, the service chiefs and the combatant commanders, and all of us, all of us um, are not only uh, very much aware of that, but also very much committed to it. How am I measuring it? Well, I've had, I've had a couple of, of key engagements over the past year or so that I'll share with you. One is uh, kind of a group uh, of outside experts, academics, business leaders, retired um, senior leaders, both enlisted and officer. And um, I asked them uh, at a Saturday session over at Fort Myer, I said, you know, tell me what you see looking in. And so that was a data point. The other thing is I, when I travel, this is the, the principal reason I travel, by the way, is not to inspect motor pools or or to uh, or walk into arms rooms or into the engine room of a ship or uh, you know or climb into a really cool looking aircraft and oh that is fun it is fun yeah. uh, actually it's getting harder and harder to climb in but that's not why I travel why I travel is to uh, get a to touch the issues and and get a feel and and, and encourage um, leaders at every rank to to uh, engage with me on this issue because you know I've got. We've got plenty of things going on out there, most of which um, are tended to and measured quite accurately and with any number of metrics. I'm talking about your preparedness to deploy, how you do on deployment, um, and so on and so forth. But what tends to not be touched or measured or, or felt, maybe, is the even better way, is how does the profession feel about itself? And that's why I travel. And so, and I travel a lot. Um, mostly overseas, but we've got plenty. We've got, you know, 250,000 or so at any given time overseas. So I'm always touching some um, young man or woman serving and trying to get, get their uh, insights. And then internally, we have, a, we have a, a, a routinely scheduled meeting we call the tank. It, it's in a 
big room, and historically the tank was over at National Defense University. It was shaped like a tank, and the chiefs met there in the conduct of World War II. And um, that name tank has carried forward in history. It's actually a quite a nice conference room now, not a tank at all. But uh, we meet on Mondays and Fridays when we're all in town, and if we're not in town, we send our deputies. And about once a month, this is one of the topics of conversation. And then finally, on my staff, my, uh, my J-7, a three-star Marine general, um, he's my, uh, let's call it point man, for the staff actions related to these initiatives. So whether it's 360-degree assessments, changing uh, fitness reports, um, refreshing key leader attributes, we're now calling them directed leader attributes, monitoring whether those directed leader attributes are are making their way into our curriculum at schools. Um, uh, all, all of the things, policies. So, for example, one of the things we learned in some of the recent challenges is we've got, this is going to shock anyone who knows the Pentagon, we've got a bit of inconsistency from service to service on how we might provide policy guidance on things like uh, travel, spouse support, enlisted aides, Gifts tend to be fairly um, well understood, but there's plenty of space out there where some of our more senior leaders might um, might not have the guidance that they need in order to act both ethically, but also to be careful of the per of the perceptions that they create. So that group in J7 is m monitors for me the implementation of all these initiatives, and then about again about once every quarter. Um, we have a session, and they they give me a um, a stoplight um, briefing. You know, this is green, this is amber, this is red, which means this is good, this is working, and this is not good. Mm -hmm. And we had one two days ago, in fact. Um, how is the uh, issue, increasingly political issue of military compensation reform, played into all this and affected this? Not just in terms of men and women currently sure. in uniform, but the next generation of recruits. You know, it's not political for me. I mean, it's it, it has been politicized. The, yes. And, you know, in some cases, for good reason. I mean, you know, I think those outside the service, our elected leaders, want to be seen as taking care of those who serve, especially during a time of war. <coughs> On the other hand, um, I, I often remind anyone who will listen that, is that we, we senior military leaders have one sacred responsibility, one sacred responsibility, and then we have a, a number of other very serious obligations. The sacred responsibility is, is to ensure that we never send a man or woman into combat unless they are prepared, best trained, best led, best equipped, and prepared to overmatch any adversary decisively you know and, and those words are carefully chosen you know we don't want to just win you know we want to win 50 to 1 not 5 to 4 because we we should be able to do that you know the the nation has given us the resources necessary to do that and that's the, where these other obligations come in so I, we also clearly have an obligation to make sure that uh, soldiers sailors airmen marines and of course the coast guard follows our policy our personnel policies and their families are well cared for. I mean, they deserve it, um, they've earned it, and we need to uh, preserve it. The challenge is sometimes those two obligations, one sacred obligation and one extraordinarily important obligation, will, will rub uncomfortably against each other because as you distribute the resources you're given, 
if you, you tend to have to distribute them in about four or five key places. You distribute them into your manpower costs, into your training costs, into your modernization costs, into your infrastructure costs, and then on operations. And, so, and there's no magic to the distribution of a budget. You make deliberate decisions every year where to put the money. If any one of those, let's call them bins, is over full, it puts enormous pressure on the other bins. And so we certainly don't want to be the military, the all-volunteer force that is extraordinarily well compensated, but is not well-trained, well-led, and well-equipped. We just can't be that, that military. Nor do we want to have it the other way, where we are so, uh, so Spartans, so well-trained, so well-equipped, so well-led, that, um, but we don't care about, really, the compensation side of it. And so we're really trying to strike a balance. And as we try to find that balance <coughs> at declining resources, we just want to do what's right. And that means for the foreseeable future, we need to slow the growth. And that's really the right phrase. It's slowing growth. It's not turning the, the, the glide slope downward. It's slowing growth. Now, that briefs well. It's harder to explain because the you know, pay compensation, health care, and retirement are enormously complicated systems and really hard to explain. But we've, we've, we've done our best. We've made some proposals. We owe it to both the field, those who, who we serve, uh, the young men and women in uniform and their families, and we owe it to the veteran support organizations, and we owe it to the executive branch and the Congress to explain what we're doing. And, and actually, we're just now beginning that process for this budget cycle. Um, and, you know, as we enter this new budget environment, one of those things that's being reassessed and has already taken some cuts and might take more is professional military education, which I also think relates to uh, the prof profession of arms campaign that you've been leading. Yeah. Could you give me your thoughts on, you think, the future of professional military education? What do you think the costs that have been invested can be sustained? Well, whenever I do here, like, for example, I mentioned I travel a lot. So I go to a military academy, and the first thing I say to the superintendents is, is this budget uncertainty and, and uh, the declining resources having, what kind of effect is that having on you? That's, that's the question. Or whether that's at a, a military academy, a war college, intermediate level education, which is really for majors, the captain's career courses, you know, the, the Navy's uh, department head schools, SEAL training at BUDS out at San Diego. Wherever I go, the first question I ask those who are running a school, have you felt the impact of this budget crisis? In every case, they have felt some impact. But generally speaking, the service chiefs and I have prevailed with our budgeteers on the issue of protecting professional military education. Now, are we making some minor, uh, modest, and probably prudent adjustments? Sure. So, for example, let's just take Capstone, which is the, uh, the charm school for new generals and admirals. By the way, I'm, I'm only kidding about it being a charm <laughs> school. Um, it, but it's the kind of the Brigadier General entry course or the, or the Flag Officer entry course. And, um, you know, we used to have a certain curriculum where we'd have uh, part of it domestic and part of it overseas travel. Well, we've scaled back on the overseas travel to save some money. But in so doing, we've prevailed the core um, curriculum, in particular that which relates to professionalism and, by the way, civil-military relations is a core component of that particular course. We, we're preserving that which has to be preserved. One last thing, and I, I know this is a longer answer to what was actually a pretty simple question. Um, 
The other thing that happened to us over the course of the last 10 or 12 years in conflict is we stopped sending kids to school on time. Why? Because they were needed. You know, the pace was just overwhelming, and it was very uncommon. Well, my son, class of 2000 uh, from West Point, who should have gone uh, to the Command and General Staff College um, at a certain point in the last three or four years, but because we had created such a dramatic backlog because we weren't sending them when they should have gone, because someone said, hey, we can't let them go right now, we need them in Baghdad or wherever. We created, this is the Army again, but each service has some similar challenge. We created such a backlog that we had to actually lop off three year groups, 99, 2000, 2001 in the Army, Hmm. and say, you get constructive credit, you have to do it online in a non-resident status, but we, we can't send you. We just can't catch up unless we lop off a few Yurgers. That's awful. So because it, it's, it's a year when, in former times, that young man or woman would have a year to go and immerse themselves in what it means to be a professional, study it, interact with their classmates uh, at their midpoint in their career, uh, and refresh themselves for the second half of their career. And for three-year groups, we just couldn't do it. And so, in fact, I was the chief staff of the Army and just about to hand it off to General Odierno when we had to make that decision in order to catch up. So the point is we can't underinvest in PME or we will suffer challenges in the future. You, you just mortgage your future when you underinvest in PME. Well, I got, I got two West, proud West Point grads in the room. I'd love to hear you guys swap your favorite West Point stories. Well, I'll let him go. I'll go age, <laughs> yeah, beauty before age. <laughs> um, Jeez. This was unscripted. So. Unscripted, yes. <laughs> Unprepared for this question. <laughs> That's why I let you go first. <laughs> yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> That's why I'm the chairman. I, All right, I'll go. Yeah, please. I'll give you time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my favorite West Point story is that I, I almost wasn't there in the first place. I actually applied to Annapolis. And did I didn't not, know that. Yeah, I didn't get in because of eyesight. And, you know, there, the, over the course of different generations, the Naval Academy either ratchets up or back its standard for eyesight, because it has to produce a certain amount of naval aviators. Mm. So, anyway, in that particular year, I applied, didn't get in, but because it was 1970, and because the, um, you know, the climate in the country was, was so corrosive toward the military, um, it wasn't all that hard to get into the military academies. And, the, and therefore, the military academies were having a bit of a challenge filling the class. So they were passing, they were passing applications around, frankly. So I didn't get into the Naval Academy, passed it over to the, to, to the military academy at West Point. And two days before I was supposed to enter, I got a telegram. That tells you how long ago that was. Uh, here we are talking you know, on a blog. But I got a telegram that said, uh, congratulations, you've been accepted into the United States Military Academy, and you'll report in two days on the 1st of July. And uh, so I said, oh, hell no. (laughs) You know, I was already enrolled in another college. You know, my mind, I had completely clicked off the whole military discipline thing at that point. Remember, it was 1969, 1970. And I I, uh, went home, got the telegram. My mother said, isn't that great news? I said, yeah, it is pretty cool to get accepted, but I'm not going. And she said, oh, you have to go. It's such an honor. And, And I said, no, Mom, I really can't do it. And she burst into tears. And uh, I said, really? And so this, you know, huge blanket of Irish Catholic guilt, you know, <laughs> wafted over me. 
And I said, okay, I'll go. I'll give it a shot in the summer. And But I'm coming home in, in September, and I'm going to go to Manhattan College, which is where I was enrolled in the Bronx. And so I, you remember, I walked into the first day of, uh, it was called Reception Day. Uh, upperclassman with a red sash greets you rather warmly uh, by yelling, at, you know, yelling at you and explaining to you that, you know, you have no business being here. You're never going to make it. And in my mind, as he's yelling at me and telling me I'm not going to make it, I'm thinking to myself, yes, I am. I'm going to make it. And then I said, well, wait a minute. I don't want to make it. And here I am. And in fact, I'll have 40 years. Uh, I will have graduated 40 years ago in June. So Congratulations. You certainly made it for someone that almost did I made it, yeah. I'm, I'm actually now thinking about it, making it a career. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad your mother guilted you into it. She did. Jason, you got something? Yeah, I think I, think I have one. So there's a, I don't think it's a, a tradition in the West Point sense. but uh, So I had heard that if you go to, that there's a way to find your, to get to the top of the bell tower of the chapel. I don't know if you had any classmates. No, I was a well-behaved cadet. <laughs> it's not something that, you know, you, it has to be done in the middle of the night, as many of West Point's traditions do. <laughs> um, and so a couple of my friends and I went up there uh, during plea parent week, and a bunch of us upperclassmen were stuck behind. And uh, we went up there, and we were, we were amazed that there were a number of people who had already been up there and had been, scratched their name huh. on the wall. And one of them included General Eisenhower. No kidding. Wow. did it in, uh, in 1912. So when he was a, uh, I guess he was a yearling then. Uh-huh. So that was uh, that was pretty neat because we thought we were just, yeah, you know, going to be doing something a little new and no, not, not so not much. Even close. By the way, you see that oil on the wall right there? Mm-hmm. That was painted by Eisenhower. Really? He, he was chief staff of the army, and uh, then he of course became president. When he retired, he he became quite an accomplished landscape and portrait artist, yeah. and uh, even had the courage to paint a oil of his of his wife. Uh, which hangs in quarters one over at Fort Myers. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Um, just, uh, I guess, what I'm really curious to ask you about is, uh, you know, as principal military advisor to the president, you know, we write, War on the Rocks is, is about strategy, yeah. fundamentally. And strategic uh, theorists talk about this sort of neat connection between ends, ways, and means. And it, it sounds simple, uh, but the reality is obviously very different because things are changing all the time. And yeah. I would just love to hear from you how you sort of uh, as someone that engaged in strategy at the highest level, rectify this sort of simple construction with the reality of strategy making? Yeah, I will say up front that normally we talk about ends, ways, and means mostly during the budget season, when the means become the prominent feature in strategic discussions. The other way we talk about strategy throughout the year is choices and consequences. You know, we, we, we are blessed as a nation to have you know, we, we have multiple options in how to deal with issues in ways that some other countries, most other countries around the world have far, far fewer options. And we never let ourselves forget that, that, you know, we, we have literally myriad options to deal with. Everything from let's do nothing about that to, you know, let's, let's bring on the band. And um, we don't want to lose that because w- the way I describe um, the role of the military, by the way, to internally to the, to to our audience is our job is to is to um, um, make us immune from coercion, make the nation immune from coercion, and and actually we've been extraordinarily successful about that. Can't take it for granted because the homeland is less sanctuary than it certainly was even 10 years ago, at least for things like ballistic missiles and cyber. So, you know, choices and consequences, and we have to understand both. 
um, immune from coercion. And then the other, the other interesting thing about strategy to me is whether it's best to define an end state and then deliberately plot a series of actions to achieve that end state. That's the traditional thinking, by the way. You identify the end state and then you back plan from that and you, you chart a course with milestones to decide whether you've got it right or not. Or whether the world in which we live today actually is one where, kind of like the Heisenberg principle in physics, where you should touch it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's some, you know, the, the Heisenberg principle, of course, is, you, you know, once you introduce yourself into an experiment, you change the outcome. And I think that's true. And that's, that's somewhat how I've watched the use of the military instrument evolve over time, where in particular in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think we'd have to admit that although we had what we thought was a definable end state and a series of objectives, that when we touched it, it changed it. And when it changed it, we then had to adjust the end state because some of it became literally infeasible and others opened up opportunities. So, you know, back to developing strategic thinkers for the future, I think we've got to develop strategic thinkers who, although they understand how to how to identify an end state, back plan, phase, you know, put in these extraordinarily exquisite phases. That's all important work, but it's not actually the way it plays out. The way it plays out is once you touch it, it changes, and then you got to be adaptable. It's kind of like I used to teach English, you know, I, I have a master's degree from Duke in literature, and I taught English composition at, uh, at West Point. So here's another West Point story. <laughs> and I had a young lady uh, turn a paper into me as, when I was an assistant professor there, and she'd obviously done a lot of work on it, and it was good thinking in it, but it was a grammatic debacle. And so I brought her in, you know, to explain why she'd gotten a C minus on the paper, and when she was clearly expecting an A plus, and I let her, you know, chat on about why she thought I was, you know, the the worst English professor she'd ever met. By the way, she was a plebe, so I'm not sure how many she'd ever met. <laughs> and um, she said, haven't you ever read Faulkner? <laughs> I said, to, you know, of course, Faulkner was another, he didn't care much about grammar, actually. But I said to her, I said, you know what? Until you demonstrate that you know the rules of the road, I'm not going to let you violate them. So I said, if you can convince me that you understand how to put a sentence together at the proper construction and you know the, the rules of grammar and punctuation and spelling. How about spelling? Um, I said, don't, you know, you, I'm not going to allow you to be Faulkner. I said, once you convince me, then you can wander off the reservation. Because I said, when you get into the, to the Army and, you know, somebody asks you to, to write a memorandum or, or draft an order, we're not looking for Faulkner in that particular <laughs> environment. But I don't want to stifle your creativity. Just prove to me that you know the rules of the road. That's kind of what strategy is. You got to know the rules of the road. That is to say, end states, you know, ends, ways, and means. But you also have to know how to adapt because the rules of the road generally are not what gets you there. That's a great answer. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for doing this, General. We really do appreciate it. Okay. Good luck to both of you. Thank you. All right. Tell me.